Greetings from Charlottesville, Virginia, and welcome to Global Commerce Exchange. I'm Peter Millay, and I'll be your host for today's conversation at the crossroads of global affairs and the world of business. Our show is brought to you by the Center for Global Commerce at the University of Virginia. Now, let's get started. Impact investing, putting capital to work to drive both financial returns as well as social and environmental returns, has grown exponentially over the past few years. Recently, I had the pleasure of hosting a panel discussion on this topic, which brought together four highly accomplished investment professionals, all alumni of the University of Virginia's McIntyre School of Commerce. It was such an interesting conversation that we immediately decided to reshare it as a podcast in its original unedited form. Although a bit longer than usual, I think you'll find it well worth your time. My guests included Marissa Drew, the Chief Sustainability Officer of Credit Suisse, based in London. In addition to leading her firm's own sustainability agenda, Marissa and her team work with institutional and private client investors, as well as corporations all over the world, on designing and implementing their sustainability and impact investment programs. Max Gottschalk, also based in London, joined us as well. Max is a highly successful investor whose latest fund, Ocean 14, is focused on UN Sustainable Development Goal number 14, Preserving Ocean Ecosystems. Next up was Meredith Shields, Managing Director of Sorensen Impact Foundation, based in Washington, DC. Meredith and her colleagues focus on early stage impact investing, addressing the world's underserved communities tackling such issues as healthcare, education, and workforce development. Rounding out this outstanding panel was Kunal Doshi, based in Palo Alto and a member of the investing team at Capricorn Investment Group, focused on areas such as renewable energy infrastructure and resources and clean tech. I really enjoyed speaking with these experts and learned a ton about this fascinating and important field. It seems to me that all investing should be about making a positive impact. These trailblazers are leading the way. Welcome to you all, and thank you so, so much for being here and taking the time to um, help us learn about this important topic. Marissa, if I can, I'd like to turn to you first to ask a question that I must say came up a lot in the pre-questions that we received from our audience members which is a deceptively simple one. And that is to define what really are we talking about when we talk about impact investing? How do you all define the field at Credit Suisse? It is absolutely a great question. And I think it's a little bit the mark of of an earlier stage and maturing industry sector when there isn't one common definition. I think the frustration sometimes is if you Google this from five different sources, you might get five different answers. But let me express that maybe in the way that Credit Suisse thinks about it. And, um, and frame it along the spectrum of financial strategies. So on the one hand, you start with very traditional uh, financial investments that ask one thing of the investment, which is to deliver a risk-adjusted return. So that's the starting point on the spectrum. As you start to move into the field of sustainable finance, and there are many strategies underneath the umbrella of sustainable finance, you, you hit uh, ESG strategies. And ESG, I think a little bit in some respects, at least in the beginning, as almost a baseline. It's a marker for good hygiene. So you, those are investments where you are screening 
initially in or out for things that align or don't align with in, I do not want to hold tobacco or fossil fuels. That would be a negative screening. Positive screening is I would like to seek out investments in um, green energy or what have you. Um, but those are typically uh, resident in public equity strategies. And if you're just doing a simple screen in and out, then typically that's also somewhat of a passive opportunity. So if you're a minority shareholder in a public company, your ability to influence and drive outcomes is somewhat limited with one exception, which is when you can engage actively with your underlying company investments. When we get into impact, and that's where I always call it the sharper end of this spectrum, in the sense that you are with your capital really delivering for outcomes. We say that there are three tenets in impact investing. One is intentionality. So I, I strive to do something beyond a financial return. Two is that that outcome is measurable. Three, I'll hold myself accountable for the delivery of the outcome just as much as I'm holding myself accountable for the return. And finally, I'll report on it in a transparent way. And so if you get into those areas, and that's what we say is impact investing. And then I'm going to further break it down into two categories. And I think it's really important that we've um, recognized that there's a place for both. You have um, what we call returns first impact there in those um, in that subsector. Those that's where you're stri striving to achieve a market rate of return for the given investment and given asset class. There's also a place in impact investing for what we call concessionary returns. So those are strategies which are prepared to take less than a market rate of return. And in essence, philosophically, a portion of your return in philosophically is in, in the good that you're doing. And there's a really important place for that concessionary to return space. Usually that's in spaces that are earlier stage where there's a high degree of risk or there just hasn't been a lot of um, uh, deliverables to, pr to prove out proof points. And sometimes we call that catalytic capital investments to really kickstart something and get it going. And then finally, the very last category uh, to think about is philanthropy. And philanthropy doesn't ask for a financial return. You just give your money and try to do something good with it. Um, up and down that entire spectrum, there's a place for everybody and in a well-diversified portfolio. We actually think even under the umbrella of sustainable investing, uh, that, that whole arena is very important. And, and I know we'll get into that in a lot more discussion today, but I, that, I thought the level setting with these definitions might help. Marissa, that's extremely helpful to understand that spectrum of opportunity. Just a quick follow-up. You mentioned ESG, and just for the benefit of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with that term, maybe you can talk a little Absolutely. bit more about what that means. And then I also wanted to ask within the space of impact investing itself, at least when I think about it, I usually think about environmental impact and social impact. Am I on the right track there or is that too narrow? Yes, so um, ES&G, the ES&G investing arena, um, at its heart um, seeks to incorporate environmental, social and governance characteristics in the investment strategies. So essentially at its heart again, once again, I don't wanna make it overcomplicated, we tend to think of using an ESG screen as a baseline for basically identifying opportunities, but also mitigating risk. So when you're taking those factors into consideration, if a company is well governed, if a company has a strong and positive environmental footprint and good social policies, almost by definition, you know, it's leading you down a path to find companies that should outperform because they're, they're much more aware 
oftentimes they're much more resilient. Uh, they have a plan B in the face of potentially a market shock and so on. So it leads you to a path of seeking opportunity. But the other side of that coin is mitigating risk. Uh, what we're also starting to see is that uh, companies that have strong ESG characteristics uh, actually help you to avoid risks that may be brewing that otherwise you wouldn't see. Um, to your question about um, the, the definition with an impact, uh, broadly defined, the two categories of impact would be social or environmental, but underneath those categories is a vast place to operate. And we use this UN Sustainable Development Goals as a lens for which to categorize the world's biggest societal problems, whether they be environmental or social, and often then helps uh, investors identify with those segments that they care most about. So is it gender equality? Is it good healthcare for all? Is it access to education? Is it what Max is doing, which is SDG 14, life below water and ocean health and conservation? So uh, that's where you start to broaden the net into, I think, uh, a really rich space and, and a seam of content for people to, uh, to get involved in. Great. And, and Max, I wanted to actually come to you next just for a little bit of a follow-up. I mean, I guess the question that honestly is on my mind, and I certainly noticed it in the audience questions, is that to a certain extent, all companies make an impact. I mean, companies employ people, companies produce products that are beneficial from, for society. So as you really think about the way you define impact, how do you draw those distinctions between what one might call generally impactful companies versus the more narrow targeted focus that you and others like you are, are investing in? You're, you're absolutely right. Um, every company has an impact, right? And so uh, what we try to do really is to try to distinguish the impact that's important to us, right? Obviously, when we make an investment, we will look at both the E, the S, and the G, but as a notion-related fund using SDG 14 as our guidelines, we very much focus on the E, you know, sustainable use of oceans, um, stopping pollution entering the oceans. So we, we are looking at very specific uh, outcomes from the investments we make. Kunal, is that the same for you as well? Are you largely environmentally focused in the work that you and your colleagues are doing? I would say for Capricorn, we don't focus entirely just on environment. We're pretty broadly focused. We define impact as um, generating basically commercial returns by trying to solve pressing problems in the world today. So uh, it, would, it would cover both. Can you give us an example of something that um, you're doing that sort of is emblematic of the focus of your firm? Sure. Um, I'll give you a good example, just based on what Max said. You know, as we think about not only making impact investments, but the next level of measuring impact, um, you know, we've actually mapped the surface of the moon six times over today. Uh, it's 10 times easier to send a space rocket into space today than just to send a boogie into the ocean to measure, um, you know, water salinity, rising temperatures, um, et cetera. So, Today, we have four boats by NOAA, which um, cost you know, millions of dollars to build and then cost, uh, on an average, daily $85,000 a day to operate. And they still have not mapped more than 20% of the, of, the, uh, of the ocean bed. We invested in a company called SailDrone, which basically uh, is 
entirely wind-driven. Um, it can go from any point to any point based on um, literally a click of a button. And it can collect, based on 16 sensors, all the data that you would need that the big NOAA ships would take. And based on that, we can identify fish patterns. We can start mapping the ocean's um, surface. Right now, we have 100 of them launched um, all over the world. We believe once we have 1,000, we will map the entire ocean's um, surface. And um, we only we charge $2,500 a day uh, as a service to countries and governments and companies to hire the sail drone itself. So that's an example of a company where, while, of course, the ocean is important, what we're trying to do is now measure um, the ocean, because, frankly speaking, it covers a majority of the world, mm-hmm. has, a lot of life, has a lot of wildlife, but we, we've not really fully discovered it yet. Wow, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, Meredith, I wanted to turn next to you if I could. I think probably many of us on the call are aware that this field has, has really exploded in, um, in recent years. Of course, it's not a new concept to invest with purpose, but this particular flavor, if you will, of impact investing has really taken off, say, in the last 10 years. As I understand your fund, um, which um, invests the resources of a private family, um, there's a, uh, there are roots in that family of philanthropy that has now sort of morphed to what you all do today, which is really focusing on impact. And I wonder if you could talk about that journey a little bit for, for the family that you represent and how you all have evolved to the place you are today of trying to allocate your capital, not only to do good, but to do good in in this more sustainable uh, return driven way. As Peter mentioned, we, I work for a family foundation and um, our family foundation was created by a serial entrepreneur who'd been very successful in business and realized that the disruptive power of the companies that he was creating and running was creating social good as well. Um, So a little over a decade ago, he started the foundation and moved his family's assets into um, the foundation in order to invest in other companies that could do social good as they grew and scaled. Um, But what Peter was talking about is what we've done more recently. And so this is unique for our foundation. Um, And I, I think so far in this call, we've made it clear that the impact investing sector has grown astronomically over the last 10 and really even five years. Um, And part of what we've been able to do is a result of that. So the Sorensen Impact Foundation is now 100% aligned in impact investments. Why is that unique? Most US charitable foundations have an endowment. That's the big chunk of money that has to grow in order to be able to continue to invest and or donate or grant every year. Um, For us, that endowment, that large chunk of money is actually 100% invested into impact investments. Um, There are a couple of foundations that have done that, that we followed um, proudly, but this year marked the year, the end of a three-year journey where we were able to fully align. So um, on the, the public side of investments, we have companies that are in the ESG category. So they screen out companies that aren't doing well by their employees um, or by their suppliers or the communities that they're serving um, or the environment. And then we also have private investments. So we invest in 
um, I can name a few. We're in KKR's Global Impact Fund. Um, we're invested in a number of VC funds based out of San Francisco that invest in um, education technology and access to healthcare. Um, and through that, we have a fully diversified portfolio. And uh, the punchline that I'm proud to share is that since we started that journey towards impact alignment, we're outperforming our benchmarks by a wider margin than we were before. And that's important in what Marissa noted too. Um, we think it's, it's actually moving us towards a bias to quality um, in, in sectors where we might not have thought about it that way before. So I'll give one example. Um, we're in a fund called Ethic Investments. They're based out of New York. Um, it's an index optimization fund. So not terribly sexy on the spectrum. It's meant to mirror the S&P 500, but they optimize for impact. So they have really sophisticated algorithms um, that scrape tons of documents and look for red flags. So for example, um, they removed Boeing from that portfolio a full year before the, um, the crashes and incidents that caused the stock to tank. And they did it because Boeing was only meeting the minimum threshold for safety requirements, which to ethic was actually a social impact issue. Um, and so that, per that portfolio does very, very well. And it's because of a, um, a move to quality. Marissa, I'd love to ask you to, to, to jump in there. Um, and can you give us a feel for, you know, you have such a broad perspective from the perch you occupy at Credit Suisse. I did some research over the weekend and, and it seems like numbers people are throwing around now for the size of this industry are upwards of a trillion dollars. Where is that capital coming from? Is this largely private and, um, and, and family oriented like Meredith was describing? Is it coming from institutions? Can you give us a sense for that? Sure. Um, so to, to echo your and, and amplify your comments, the space overall, overall sustainable investing is growing at extraordinary rates. Um, so the ESG investing space is north of 75% and has been sort of year on year for the past several years. And impact, while starting from a much smaller base, is north of 1000% in terms of its growth profile. So uh, all signs are up, up, up. And I think that just reflects this enthusiasm and recognition that you don't have to put returns and uh, purposeful uh, outcomes in two different buckets. Um, in terms of you know, the breadth of where this all leads, I guess I would love to pick up on Meredith's point about this is a little bit of an indicator of quality. And um, I get quite excited in exploring spaces where people have said they're historically either uninvestable or places where uh, the traditional thinking is that you couldn't generate a market rate of return in that investment, because I'm, I'm keen on proving um, those theories wrong and we're doing it sort of every day. And I guess that's where the excitement comes from my, my side is when we roll up our sleeves and we get stuck into something and then we can prove those outcomes. So maybe just to give you one example, in the, um, and, and it comes around to your question about who's investing in impact. Uh, we started a journey um, back in 2014 to ask ourselves whether it was possible to generate private equity style returns in an illiquid strategy focusing on people at the base of the pyramid. So this is people earning two and $5 a day in frontier markets. 
And we really didn't know if it was possible. And conventional wisdom would tell you, just like way back in the day, conventional wisdom told you that microfinance was a bad idea. So giving loans to people with no credit histories in um, developing markets was going to be a bad thing. Um, in a similar uh, thought process, we, we said, you know, we just don't, it just doesn't sit right with us that that's, that would be the case that you can't invest in this population. So we've set a very clear strategy, private equity returns to pay for the illiquidity, focus on people at the base of the pyramid doing two things. One, uh, investing in companies which would look to raise income levels and take people that subsistence level living. And the second thing is to provide quality access to goods and services. And through that journey, um, I'm very pleased to say Fund One um, is delivering, it's unrealized because it's we're still early days, but the, most of the capital, virtually all the capital has been deployed and our mark to market is north of 35%. So absolutely fabulous return right up there with the tier one private equity crowd. And what is most important about that journey is um, I almost feel like the companies that we're investing in find us as much as we find them because they're run by mission-driven entrepreneurs out to deliver outcomes to societal problems. And therefore, on the one hand, it makes them sustainable. On the other hand, it makes them needed. And so they are able to operate and they've re-engineered all their businesses to focus on that population. And when you do that, you do things in your companies differently than perhaps we would in the West. And that's pretty exciting. So uh, that's just one kind of snippet. The investors in that fund initially, we could not get any real institutions to participate when we were trying that out. It was private families who had a passion for the idea of raising income levels, and they were prepared to provide that patient capital and go on the experimental journey with us because we didn't know if we were going to generate good returns. Um, but now what's happened is we're in the middle of raising our second fund. And lo and behold, now the institutional community is very, very intrigued because Institutional investors are looking to put more and more and more money to work in this space and uh, with a track record of, of demonstrable returns and a differentiated strategy. So if you're an institutional investor and you want to develop a diversified portfolio, if you chase the same alternative space, in this case, illiquid private equity with traditional funds, they're largely competing for the same businesses. Mm -hmm. They're at auction with each other. But when you're looking at this strategy here, there is really nobody in our space that's focusing on th this population. And this is in particular strategy in Southeast Asia um, and, and frontier markets in Southeast Asia, highly, highly differentiated. So it's just also good, sound, smart investing purely from a diversification, diversification well, point of view. Let's stick with that. And I'll open it up to two other uh, panel members if, if you'd like to um, weigh in on this. Uh, one of our current Darden students, Ryan McNamara, he, he, phrase the question this way. Here's the million dollar question. Do well-governed or impact-focused firms outperform their peers and the market overall? What data or evidence can you point to from your own investing experience? So Marissa's given us a great example that comes out of the frontier market in Southeast Asia. Can others of you um, address uh, Ryan's question and give him a flavor for how these returns really are manifested? I can. I'd like to say a couple of things. And I, I loved everything you were saying, Marissa. The portfolio you're describing is um, is the portfolio I manage, which is an for us, which is an early stage VC um, oriented portfolio, but focused on low income, both in the United States and emerging markets. 
Um, and since we're invested in so many other funds, we get a chance to benchmark that portfolio, even though it's 100% invested in by the family that I work for. Um, and our performance is great. So an example is that we invested six years ago in a company um, based out of Salt Lake City that helps bring high school dropouts back into finishing a GED or getting their high school diploma. Um, it's a really high impact business. Um, they, they generate incredible amounts of impact across the country, um, but it's also a profitable business. And that company was acquired earlier this year by one of the largest investment firms in the world. Um, and so for us, when, when we see things like that, we're thinking, wow, it's not just the families and the private family offices who are looking at impact investing as a way of disrupting the things that we do and potentially creating new scalable solutions. Um, but now it's, it's getting interest from more traditional players. Um, and I have a couple of examples like that, but Meredith, let me ask you a follow-up if I can on that, sure. because it would get to the heart of another good kind of line of questioning that was coming in through our audience. And that is, how do you think about balancing the financial return with the social return. So to use the case that you just presented as an example, I could well imagine that by cutting certain cost structures in that company, um, it might improve the returns, but it might also, for example, reduce the face-to-face um, -face impact that's, that teachers and other mentors have with these um, individuals that benefit from those services. So. How do you and how do others think about gauging that um, tension, or am I right in understanding that there would be a tension? So the, the word trade-offs is used a lot, I think, in this space. Um, and we would say that it's not always the case that you have to trade one for one. So we're typically looking for businesses where as the revenue grows, the impact grows. So the company that I just mentioned is an example. For every dollar of revenue that they generate, they're serving more students. And each student they serve finishes high school, which is high impact, high revenue at the same time. Um, as far as how to balance over time, I think what we've seen is that the more impact-oriented strategies sometimes that's their secret sauce. That's what makes them different. That's what makes them unique. And that's how they win because they're approaching it from a different angle than just cut cost, mm -hmm. increase volume. Um, that, I think that, that that philosophy is a little bit new and in, an, in a world where most of us learned that the responsibility of a board and a management team is to maximize shareholder value. We think of value on the financial side, not necessarily the right. impact, but we would argue that the two are intertwined and can work together and it doesn't have to be forsaking one for the other. Max, let me turn to you on the environmental side. Um, and, and maybe I'll pose it yet another audience member question that I thought uh, got to the heart of this issue. Um, Joseph Maddox, who's a recent comm school grad, asked the question this way, how do you balance impact versus financial returns? For example, which type of investment would you be more likely to make? An investment with high impact, but only a 10% return 
or an investment with lower impact, but a 25% IRR. So two questions there. Is that the right way to think about it? Is, is Joseph on the right track here? And then how do you think about it in the environmental context? Yes, yeah, so um, when you, uh, I think there's still today a little bit of a misperception that in order to generate impact, you need to give up uh, return, financial return. And I think in, in the world of ocean in particular, where I spend a lot of time, I think there's this convergence of both financial gain and environmental gain. So you don't necessarily have to give up performance to do good. Uh, I also think quite the contrary, I think what Meredith was talking about, I think there's becoming far more transparency across the, the businesses, meaning companies have to report uh, you know, on their carbon footprint, on their environmental uh, footprint, social and governance. So you, you, all of this is becoming more and more transparent. So consumers are now choosing, uh, you know, products from companies that they want to buy. And also, you know, Maritha discussed all this growth in demand for ESG programs. Well, what you have is you have a lot of capital now chasing good companies and therefore the capital flows by themselves are making these companies more valuable. They are more visible, it's easier for them to raise money, it's easier for them to hire talent. And so all of this is really, really good. A point I'd like to add as well is today, um, you know, very, even though I think people, oh, that's one of the points we want to talk about is measuring impact. Um, impact today is, is people want the transparency is what is your impact in investments? but there's no real value being put on the impact, so to speak, meaning it's a nice number. We're looking to try to, we're trying to determine what is the impact that the company has, for example, on the environment in terms of a seaweed project we're looking at, will have immense CO2 sequestration. But what is interesting is if you take it a step further, and I think there's a real movement now trying to value nature, can we actually value the impact that we make? And so not only are we looking at impact as a way to, you know, to, you know, to report it back to our stakeholders, you know, this is the objectives and these are our goals and this is what we've done in terms of impact in our investments. But I think that over time, we may very well be able to monetize on the impact. So let me take it just a step further. This seaweed projects we're looking at is a very interesting business. It's operating at very healthy margins, 25% uh, EBITDA margins, a growing industry with lots of strong fundamentals. So we think we can make a lot of money just investing in that business. Now we looked at what is the amount of CO2 being sequestered from that project over the life of our investment. And so on the math we did, if we're able to sell blue carbons or blue credits, carbon credits, in the tune of the amount that's being sequestered by our projects over the life of our projects, at $20 a metric ton of carbon, we would recover our entire investment. And today we're valuing this at zero. It's an optionality in our investments. At $80 a metric tons of carbon, we would make four times our money back just from the impact element of our investment. Not even the financial gains we would do by investing in a good business that has a very commercial viable business, but only by the impact. So a lot of the work we're doing is around really being very um, scientific about and able to quantify the impact we do, 
so that we can measure it, audit it, report it, and then ultimately value it. So that's, you know, I've taken this a few steps further, but to come back to the question is, I don't think we look at impact as a way, as a concessionary way, or we need to make an impact. Uh, we are very impact driven, meaning we have funds is, as purpose, meaning we need to achieve or invest in companies that move towards achieving SDG 14. But we're sort of taking a really quantitative and very, mm-hmm. you know, very scientific approach to quantifying the impact and, and, and reporting it. I'd love to give another example and, and to amplify exactly what Max is, is saying um, and what Meredith said. So first of all, um, almost across the board to answer your prior um, student's question, we are seeing our performance of sustainable strategies. And the beautiful thing through the crisis is there was consistent outperformance. And, it, and it's whether you looked at big liquid funds via Morningstar, whether you looked at uh, illiquid uh, impact strategies, if you looked at ESG leaders versus laggards, even within a given industry. So let's take already a green industry like renewables. You see significant outperformance from the ESG leading companies that are really well governed and take all these things into consideration, including being a green company versus those that maybe had lower G scores or lower S scores yet still were in the renewables arena. So almost no matter way, which way you look at it, we've seen outperformance. And, um, I love the idea that in shock points is when you really test your metal, right? When you have a market shock or an exogenous event that impacts, that gives enthusiasm to the market and creates confidence. And that's partly why we're seeing an enormous amount of funds flows into these strategies. But I'd like to touch as well on on, um, amplifying something that Max said about this pricing of natural capital. Uh, He's talking about the opportunity side to generate returns. On the risk mitigation side, I also think there's a pricing dynamic that we should be considering in a much more serious way. Um, If you take a look at in his ocean space, uh, mangroves is a natural capital solution for coastal barrier protection, as an example. Historically, what did we do? We used uh, concrete walls, uh, which produce a very high carbon footprint in the production of cement and concrete. Uh, They don't withstand storm surges and they're actually very destructive when they degrade in terms of the ocean economy. So negative, 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 negative. And frankly, they cost more to put in place in the first instance. Looking at mangroves, which is a whole new way for people to think about uh, opportunity and cost, um, they're cheaper to plant. They actually withstand storm activity better. And the mangroves themselves are part of the food uh, ecosystem of a healthy ocean because plankton feed on, um, on the mangroves and fish feed on the plankton and it becomes a, a positive virtuous circle. Now that is a whole different way to think about finance perhaps than we have ever done before. But I think this is where the intellectual fun comes in is to challenge ourselves on this, on this reframing of finance yeah. and, and investment industry. And it leads you to some pretty exciting places. Hey, Kunal, let me come to you to kind of follow up on this conversation. So Meredith sort of introduced the idea with her example of um, the students that are getting their GED or high school diplomas, which obviously has enormous social impact. Max is then talking about, you know, the monetization of carbon credits. So there you are at Capricorn, whereas I understand it, you, you have a very full spectrum view. You consider um, all kinds of different investment opportunities. How do you even think about um, putting on a level playing field investments that are as diverse as helping people complete high school versus, you know, something to do with the oceans and mangrove investments? 
And because I think it speaks to the point that I understood Max making, which is the need to quantify this return more and more so that in the same way that on the financial side, we, we evaluate investments side by side every day and have the metrics to do that. How do you think about that same evaluation, comparative evaluation on the social side? That's a good question. And, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm really happy because usually we're the ones pounding our fists saying, you know, you don't need to give up impact to generate returns. And it's really nice to be surrounded by people who believe in that philosophy pretty strongly. So I'll start off with that. Um, I, you know, and I'll try to keep it brief, but Capricorn's history of impact investment started over 20 years ago. I think the firm was born from the belief that sustainable investment practices can enhance risk-adjusted returns, right? So that's when we had a theory and we believed, let's go set it, prove it out. Um, and we did, and we were patient with our capital. In fact, our investment in Tesla was over a decade and a half ago. And at that point, if you told someone that you're trying to invest in an electric car, they would think of it as a golf cart car. They were not thinking that you're going to disrupt the entire industry. And 15 years later, this year was in some say sort of emotional for us because Tesla not only became the most valuable automaker out there, but it also exceeded Exxon Mobil in terms of market cap. So our thesis went from, can we generate uh, risk-adjusted returns to can we exceed market risk-adjusted returns? And now we, we have a thesis where we're like, can we ensure that we're in the top 5% of risk-adjusted returns for VC and private equity? And you know, it's been great news for us, but I think even better news for the industry that we've, we've proven that we can that we can be in the top 5% or of, of returns in the market. And, and the rationale behind it is not because, of course, you need to be a good investor, period. But the reality is that if you invest in sustainable investment practices, those externalities, that patient capital in the long run, will command a premium. So we have a full spectrum of investments from healthcare, space exploration, electrification, um, water, and we're not trying to check a box. We're not trying to say, okay, this year we didn't make a water investment. We need to go make it. Depending on the industry, depending on the time of the year, you find an opportunity that makes the most sense and you make the investment. And that's the way we sort of go about with it. Um, I'll give you two broad examples of what we've done. Um, one example is uh, Planet Labs. Okay, Planet Labs basically started about 10 years ago. We, invest, we, we met the founder in a startup garage, literally in his garage. And uh, they basically said, we can, we can invent satellites that are about um, a foot and a half long, cost a million dollars, and we can launch them into space. And just to give you context, that's one hundredth of the cost of satellites at that time. And we said, well, what will you do with all these satellites? And he said, as the Earth rotates, it can take a picture of every square inch of Earth within 24 hours. So now what you have the ability to do is, if you look at the Amazon forest last year, you look at the Amazon forest this year, you can actually outline where deforestation took place, right? And it's, it's a model for data tracking for the entire globe. And today, we invested in them at a pre-$20 million valuation. Today, they, they've crossed over a billion and a half dollars in valuation. So it gives you a good example of, of what happens when you're sustainable and patient in terms of investing capital. And take it on the other side, this is, this is what we call as earth impact or environmental impact. If you think of people impact, we've also invested in a startup education app where when students in, in North America are struggling 
with a problem and they, you know, you don't always call them a tutor, especially now, you don't always have access to a professor. You can take a picture of your problem. It will surge like Uber. A teacher in the developing world that probably gets paid a lot less than a teacher in the developed world will pick up that problem, chat, and solve the problem for the student within 10 minutes. So you've sort of created an advantage in both economies. Um, and most importantly, if you leverage AI over time, students ask similar questions, you can leverage that AI and technology to now have a bot, which people don't like to chat with, but sometimes they're equally effective in answering questions. So to your point, that's how UV impact and those examples of environment and people impact in, under what we call is the return on humanity uh, as capital. That's, those are really great examples and I appreciate you sharing those with us. And it reminds me to ask a um, somewhat cynical question perhaps that was asked by one of our audience members who worries a little bit that this field is dominated by what he referred to as sexy investing, you know, and that as long as it has something to do with cool apps or it has something to do with, you know, saving the turtles in Costa Rica, then it's going to get all kinds of attention. But if it's if it's kind of off the grid and it's more basic blocking and tackling day to day reinvestment um, in communities, reinvestment in environments, um, not so much. Is that reasonable for him to have that? concern. Mar Marissa, I see you shaking your head. Can you take that up for us? Um, I, I actually think serving underserved communities, I think I alluded to a little earlier, is um, because in many respects it's a necessity, your beneficiaries don't have a plan B and they so desperately need your services, uh, that creates a very sustainable business model. So I love the sexiness of tech and, and a lot of our returns are coming from what I call tech-enabled uh, service for humans. And in fact, that's one of our super trends, which is technology at the service of humans. Mm -hmm. And whether it's ed tech or, or uh, healthcare delivery by mobile app and, and scanning and so on for people in frontier markets, all that's fabulous. But actually even basic, basic goods and services. Um, so a, a category I might point to, which has been very, very successful is investing in affordable housing. We know in every major city in the world, whether it's Western, or whether it's developing, we're having an increasing divide in the ability for people who are at the lower economic level to afford housing. So if you're investing in providing affordable housing for those communities, and it's a very different model than investing in luxury real estate and building luxury condos in, in Manhattan or San Francisco, um, you're creating a necessary service. And I'm actually on a personal basis invested in a fund that's been doing that for 20 years and delivering extraordinary double-digit returns in a debt instrument, even at these low interest rates. So it can be done. Another example um, I might point to uh, in, in the area of kind of basic goods and services is in uh, healthcare delivery. Back to that same um, uh, concept of, of uh, people at the base of the pyramid, we've invested in a private equity fund that is um, thinking of is providing hospital care in frontier markets in India. And the business model of hospital delivery in rural India is completely different than the West. The ratio of hospital beds and, uh, to operating theaters is completely the inverse of what you see in the West. It's almost like an industrialized process to provide uh, surgery. So you have many, many more operating theaters versus rooms. So it's, it's deliver the care and then they leave, they don't stay overnight and all the cost infrastructure associated with that. Now you might say, is that actually treating the patient as a commodity? 
actually, because those doctors see more cases on a, on a daily basis by a factor of 10 than what you see in the West, the experience and the quality of care that those serve are nothing, you know, in relative to the cost of the US, probably one, if not a hundredth of, of the surgery cost, they're able to do that. They can do it um, in an in industrialist way. It's good old simple basic technology, no, no tech here. Um, but actually making exceptional returns. And I could go on and on and on sector by sector, but those are just some snippets of how those areas can happen. Thank you, thank you. Yorika asked if it's realistic to expect social enterprises to tackle systemic issues. Or another listener asked the question this way, impact investing seems to fill a gap between what free market capitalism can achieve and where governments can add value. Is impact investing simply passing responsibility from governments to financiers and therefore not holding governments responsible? It's a big topic, but how do you even think about that question? It's a good one too. So uh, look, governments play a very critical role uh, in the impact space, right? They, you know, they set the rules and regulations in place, Um, you know, they, 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 they in, fact, in fact invest very heavily in the impact space. Um, some of the some of the government related entities are are really pushing towards um, you know a greener energy productions. Uh, you've seen that in Europe. I think COVID in particular has been a huge you know create huge demand for new innovative products and and, and energy productions uh, in green uh, in particular. So I don't think. It's passing the baton to call it financial and financiers. I think what I see sort of our role to do is we need to make we need to make nature investable. We need to be able to provide financial vehicles to allow investors to invest in good companies. So our responsibility is to create these investment vehicles that are investable by the institutional investors. And today it's still a very new industry, it still relatively doesn't really have a long track record. You know, we've seen Marissa and her fund that Credit Suisse, they're now launching their second fund. So there's only fund one or fund two happening today. And so I see our role in trying to create these investment vehicles to allow large pension funds and, and large sophisticated investors to get access to that space. So I don't know if that answers the question particularly, but I think when I look at the relationship we have with governments is a very friendly one. One, they're investing in us. Two, they are produ- they're producing opportunities for us. Um, we're working hand in hand with them with respect to, for example, the blue carbon and the blue credits I just mentioned earlier. You know, they want, they want to help. So I don't think it's passing the baton. I, I think that it's working it's side by side. Yeah. Number-wise, you know, so if you look at the UN SDGs, they calculated the math and we need, you know, multiple, multiple trillions per year to be invested in these systemic problems if we're going to have half a chance of getting there. And if you take all the government money that exists in the world and all the philanthropic capital that you exist that exists in the world, there is still a multi-trillion dollar annual gap. And that's why the private sector is stepping in to help fill that gap. So I think it's a critical, they're all part of, of an important system. So, and Marissa, that actually leads me to the next question that I really wanted to land on. I think almost like not a day goes by now where I'm not having a conversation with one of our current students, and I'm sure this is true of all of my colleagues as well, 
about how they can develop careers that are purpose-driven rather than um, return-driven. And I know many of them, and I'm sure many of our listeners on this webinar right now are interested in getting into this space. What advice would you have, and I'll throw this open to any of you who would like to jump on it, uh, what advice would you have for any of our, say, current third, fourth year students or some of our recent graduates who are trying to get into positions that you all are in? Take my class as a starter. <laughs> okay. okay, shameless plug. <laughs> application is due on Friday. Um, Meredith, I think that's a great suggestion, Max. Meredith, what would you recommend? So take Max's class. And <laughs> I also, I think, fortunately, if you're a third or fourth year student at UVA right now, you're in a much better position than even five years ago. Um, having, if you want to be in investing, having the finance skill set is important. Um, but there are so many more ways to do that now. I, I mean, we can see from Marissa Credit Suisse and a lot of the big financial institutions have sustainable practices. Uh, a lot of UVA alums in the space, by the way, which is fun and a great way to network. Um, you can also go the private route this now with huge teams at giant investment funds focused on impact. The other thing that I'll just plug is that um, you can also go work for big companies and focus on persuading them to, to think about all of the stakeholders, including employees and suppliers um, who they work with and how to benefit them. Um, so going to work for an Amazon, a Walmart and being part of those discussions is also a great way to have a purpose-driven career. Fantastic. Kunal, anything to add on this last question? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just quickly make a point. I still remember 10 years ago when I, when I approached Mark White to ask him, this is what I'm interested in. What do I do? I interned at the UN and I don't have the patience to work with people at the UN. Um, he said, what do you think this industry fundamentally lacks? And I said, they don't have the capital. They're never going to be able to combat climate change. And he said, okay, well, who does that really well? And I said, Wall Street. So he said, well, go join Wall Street, pick up that skill set, and then transfer that skill set back over the, to the impact in industry, which back then we call sustainability. So that's what I did. I would say find something that you really think you can create a value in. Find a gap in the sector, even an impact investment that you think you can fill. And then go develop the skill set so that when your time comes, you know what you can do. You can do it really, really well and create value. And I think that is what will be your recipe for success. Thank you, Professor White, for changing lives. Marissa, you're at a large company where you've been for many years. Are there, as Meredith said, are there those opportunities that you see in um, Credit Suisse itself or in your corporate clients that our students and young alums should be thinking about as well? Yeah, across the board. So the beautiful thing is that I always say, if you want to think about a career opportunity and longevity, go where the growth is. Right. If you, by definition, if you're going into a shrinking industry or shrinking sector or even a shrinking moment in a market cycle, uh, all you're focused on is reducing resources and cutting costs. Um, the, the wonderful thing about the sustainability field is um, the societal problems that we're all trying to solve. The, the mission that, you know, I think gets us all up to every day and our North Star is not an overnight anything. 
It is going to take decades and decades and decades and trillions of dollars of investment, which therefore means that there's a longevity to this and an opportunity set that's going to open up across corporates, the investment world, uh, the policymaking world, uh, civil society, you name it. So I would almost start with saying, what are you passionate about? Do you like the idea of being an investor? Then think about investing with a sustainability lens and all that that entails, whether it's institutional, whether it's PE, whether it's venture, et cetera. And we've got representatives across the piece on that. If you much more say, I'm actually a corporate person. I love the idea of working for a, a corporate entity with goods and services. Every single corporate in every single sector desperately needs people who will push and challenge the businesses to evolve their models to make them more sustainable. And it is not actually an accident that they used to say one of the most important routes to become a CEO of a large corporate would be either be head of strategy or maybe CFO. Now they say it's the CSO. The role is actually becoming critically important because the longevity of the company in many respects depends on it. If you're passionate about um, sort of um, that, that political arena or regulatory arena, uh, my God, every single uh, you know, political leader is sort of banging the drum on, on sustainability and same thing and translating that into regulation. So even within a bank, investing, advising, research analyst, sustainability everywhere, even our real estate people, right? I'm challenging them every day to look at our corporate footprint and think about how we can push ourselves to, uh, to change our operations. So uh, honestly, there, the, the, the opportunities are vast. It's what do, you, what do you get excited about? Thank you. Well, um, as many of my former students will tell you, I'm well known for never letting class out on time. So I promised myself today we would actually end on time. This has been just a truly amazing conversation. And I think you've all opened our eyes uh, to this incredibly important field. And I'm sure you have continued to spark the interest of many of our listeners. And so um, again, I just wanna thank um, all of you, Max and Meredith and Marissa and um, Kunal for sharing your expertise and also for being such great ambassadors of McIntyre and of the University of Virginia. We really, really appreciate that. Global Commerce Exchange is produced at the University of Virginia's McIntyre School of Commerce by Rick Carew with support from McIntyre student Priti Nandi. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the guests and host and do not reflect the official policy or position of either the school or the university. Sign up for future shows at globalcommerce.substack.com and subscribe to Global Commerce Exchange wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our listeners and to those who submitted such great questions. We look forward to being with you again soon. And as always, go Hoos!